This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast, episode 43. Today, I have a special guest because I'm talking to Becca Puglisi, one of my all-time literary heroes, and we're chatting all about character occupations. It's a fascinating nerd out that we have, and we delve into the details of writing and characterization. But first... I am going to cover two questions uh, because I (laughs) missed posting the question last time. So to the question uh, last week first, which was, which part of character creation do you find the hardest? Yanni said, I find uh, not making them 2D or too over the top to be difficult. There are so many different sides to character. I to to characters, I don't want to only show the good or only show the bad. I want them to be interesting to read, but not so complex that it confuses the reader. I completely agree and finding the balance is difficult. I selfishly asked this question because um, I decided that the next non-fiction book I write is going to be about side characters. And The reason for that is I think once I've completed that book, I'm probably going to do a really in-depth writing craft course looking at heroes, villains, uh, side characters, protagonists, uh, characters as a whole, uh, story, uh, character arc, looking at all of those good things. I I see this now, but... I'm in the middle of doing the prose course and it's really hard. (laughs) So, uh, but anyway, this is my plan. So this is one of the reasons I wanted to know about the things that you struggle with because uh, it will help inform what I create for you. Amy said defining their motivations is the most uh, tricky part. She can get the wound, but then relating actions to that wound can be a bit challenging for the periphery or second motivations. April said um, getting all the details down. I often, all too often, my characters only give me some of the information in scattered accounts. I completely understand stories come to me like that. So yeah, I sympathise. Uh, Lauren said, I would love a blog post or podcast on what you learned about hacking Trey into tiny pieces. <laughs> I think I think this was in, in relation to last week when I explained that I'd hacked it all up and that um, I had learned loads. So I, I am still thinking about that and what I can do and the things that I've learned. But I think I might have to get to the end of it first before I can before I can process what <laughs> like the craziness of what's happened. Um, mm -mm. so the week before I asked what three words described your author branding Edwin said I can be rebellious enough to admit I don't have an answer for this week's question I I try to have fun when I'm reaching out my about me even mentions are crack squad of vorpal rabbits I do my best to lean into my science fiction passion at every opportunity, even though that's uh, two words. I also make a point to keep my outreach clean and flinch free. Okay, some of my jokes fail at that last one. I am a Christian, but I wouldn't call what I write Christian fiction in what I see as the traditional sense of the term. Linda King said, I'm literally in the middle of trying to figure out my brand. I want to write all the things and be all the things. I I get it. I understand. It is difficult to narrow it down. And funnily enough, um, that's one of the things that I am really deeply thinking about at the moment in terms of my 
fiction and where I go with that. I really feel like there are two parts of me. Part of me who is now obsessed with prose and what I view as beautiful prose and that won't be the same for everybody. And then the other part of me is in love with the humour and the sarcasm and the wit that I put into the non-fiction and I would really like to have that in my fiction too, uh, you know, with sassy characters and sarcasm and all, and all of this stuff. And I'm having trouble merging the two and I posted in my Facebook group this week asking for recommendations so I'm going to have a peruse of some of those and you know a lot of the recommendations came back to people like Terry Pratchett who is hilarious I have read and loved Terry Pratchett for years but it isn't the type of it isn't I find Terry Pratchett enormously funny, but I don't think Terry Pratchett has the type of uh, beautiful prose that I am thinking about when I think of beautiful prose. And a good example of that will come in the, this week's book recommendation. Anyway, this is all, um, as you can tell, <laughs> I am still mulling all of this over and not really clear what I'm trying to say in my brain. So once I figure that out, I will tell you. Matthew Goodall said, educate, inspire and entertain. Renee said, still working on branding, but snarky, down to earth, and hopefully funny or quirky. Um, Belinda Becker said, creative, correct. Oh, wow, this one is a tongue twister. Belinda said, creative curator connection. Try saying that after a few gins. Uh, and she said, uh, I, uh, well, obviously it's very clear what her words are, so I uh, can't tell I've been doing a lot of work around this area lately. Ha ha. Val Neal said, I'm still brainstorming branding, but I think knowledge, neurodiversity and a dash of darkness. I love that. Uh, she continues to say, those are some elements that show up in my work. And so I'm going to try and work them into my brand. I love that. I absolutely love that. This week's question is, what job does your character have? So let me know in the comments on, on, the, on the podcast, in the blog, all of that uh, good stuff or tweet me. This week's recommendation is Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor. Oh, I loved this book. So um, it has a trope that I'm not a huge fan of, which is insta-love, but it is explained as the story goes on why that insta-love happens. Um, but the reason I loved this book so much, it is young adult fantasy, I should probably add. Uh, the reason I loved the book so much is the quality of the prose. Um, we of course all have different preferences and likes and dislikes when it comes to prose, but I truly felt like her her description was exquisite in the same way that I adore uh, Melissa Albert on from the who wrote the Hazelwoods characterization, like the description from the characterization. I know I've used her as an as an example on a number of occasions, so I'm probably going to do some analysis. I have about 11 gazillion sticky tabs in Daughter of Stick Smoke and Bone, so I'm probably going to do some kind of analysis, and uh, if and when I have, I will share that with you and the lessons I have um, learned. But yeah, I highly recommend this book. I know young adult fantasy isn't for everybody, but oh, I loved it. So in personal news this week, I was delighted to be um, a coach on Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi's website recently. Uh, and I was 
talking about how to analyze what you read, how to teach yourself from the things that you're analyzing. Uh, and I think it's called What Read More Really Means. And I was also absolutely thrilled to be on the Big Gay Author podcast. I adore Jeff and Will and I love their podcast and they actually have two and um, I do listen to both of them, although I listen to one more than the other. But um, yes, it was super fun. They are amazing hosts. And yeah, so you go and listen to that podcast. I will, of course, link to all of the things that I'm talking about in the show notes. This last week has been a bit of an odd week. Um, I'm, I think I've said this before, but I'm not very good at recognizing when I'm tired. And I think I'm probably tired. I, I've hit a bit of a wall and I'm agitated and unfocused and just all over the place. This week, I've not got down and done the important work. I've been um, you know, doing a slew of admin work. I've taken on more freelance work, which I really shouldn't do because I am so busy with the stuff that I'm trying to do myself. Uh, so I am now banning myself from doing any editing or client work uh, other than just the core of what I need to do. Um, yeah, uh, so I have continued to make progress with Trey. I'm now 65% of the way through. I am slightly disappointed because I kind of thought I would have finished. Uh, because I did the first 50% in a week, but alas not. I have also been working on the Anatomy of Prose companion course, and oh, fuck me, I really, whoops, I just dropped my headphone. I really, really tried to keep this course <laughs> small and tight. But the course is now 25 modules, nine documents, and six bonus videos, and there's also a set of... Uh, free intro videos that I want to do. So the fucking thing has mushroomed and it's going to be several hours, I think, or at least a few hours um, of course materials. Um, uh, what does this mean? It, so basically, obviously I cannot um, include everything from the book. So I'm trying to drill down and focus on particular areas. Um, and I have stripped out all of the characterization stuff because, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I am going to look at what I can do in terms of a, a really big course um, once I finish the side characters book. Um, but yeah, this course will be launching around the beginning of October. So <laughs> I'm just trying not to like anxiety over how much I have to do in amongst finishing books and launching books between now and then. Oh. oh, and in other exciting news, I'm gonna get to meet my co-host, Daniel Wilcox, uh, of uh, the Next Level Author podcast next week, so I, on Tuesday, so before this comes out, when, by the time this airs, I will have already met him, and we will have had a, like, business brainstorming type day, and a podcast day, so yeah, I am super excited for that this week. Listener Rebel of the Week this week is Steve Moore. Steve says, in 2000, in the year 2000, I was on a 12-month round-the-world backpacking, backpacking trip and found myself in Huntington Beach, LA, where my then-girlfriend's cousin, cousin owned a popular Irish bar. On some nights, celebrities were known to pop into Gallagher's bar on their way downtown LA. My girlfriend worked in the bar sometimes whilst I got some shifts greeting people on the door. One such night, we were told to expect a stream of celebrities, and though I'm not one who covets celebrity, it was pretty exciting. 
First arrival was the lovely mm, Shalik O'Neill, I think that's how you say it, I have no idea, who has the biggest hands I've ever seen. Following him were several other, other basketball players, including the notorious Dennis Rodman. I then spotted Tommy Lee of, of Motley Crue, who I knew was married to the most famous woman on the planet at the time, Pamela Anderson. Now, I was a young-ish Brit who grew up watching Baywatch, no shame whatsoever. And there she was. She walked over to me just a few yards behind Tommy and she said hello. Then she started kissing me. Full on. Her feisty husband, Tommy Lee, notorious scrapper, was a mere 10 feet away and my girlfriend was somewhere inside. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw him walking back towards me, fucking hell. After at least five seconds, Pamela still had her face planted on mine. Tommy said, come on, Pammy. And she let me go, grinned and walked off. Tommy smiled at me and said, lucky day, huh? And walked into the pub with Pamela fucking Anderson on his arm. Yes, my girlfriend saw it all. The moment I was accosted by Pammy. Later that night, we were invited to what I believe was Rodman's 40th birthday party at a club in LA. No, I didn't chase Pammy, but we did have a good night and left with half a dozen pilfered bottles of Don Perignon. I suppose I could have shrugged Pammy off uh, with her violent husband and my girlfriend nearby. But where's the fun in that? (laughs) Oh, what a cracking story. I don't think we've had a celebrity rebellion yet. So that was amazing. I loved the story. And what a memory to keep uh, to tell your grandchildren as well. If you would like to be a Rebel of the Week, please do send in your story. It can be any kind of rebellion, big, small, or somewhere in between. You can email your Rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod. No new patrons this week, but a huge thank you to all of my current patrons. You help to keep the podcast running. You help to make me feel like I'm doing a good job and that you are enjoying what I do. As you know, we I ran the first Patreon goal Q&A and uh, in Patreon you should be able to get the link to where the live video is now stored so that you can watch the replay and if anyone has trouble with that just let me know, drop me an email or a message and I will make sure you can get the link. If you would like to support the show and get access to all of the bonus essays, posts, content and uh, opportunities and Q&As like we just did, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And as always, that's Sasha with a C and not an S. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today I am joined by a super special guest. I am joined by Becca Puglisi. Becca is an international speaker, writing coach and best-selling author of The Emotion Thesaurus and other books for writers, including her latest, The Occupation Thesaurus, which will be available. Actually, as this says, this has already launched, so you can go and get your hands on a copy right now. Becca's books have sold over 500,000 copies and are available in multiple languages, are sourced by US universities, and are used by novelists, screenwriters, editors, and psychologists around the world. 
She is passionate about learning and sharing her knowledge with others through her Writers Helping Writers blog and One Stop for Writers, a powerful online library created to help writers elevate their storytelling. And Becca is also one of a duo, a twosome uh, of whom Angela Ackerman has already been on the show. Um, and I will look up the link for that episode and put it in the show notes for anybody listening who would like to go back and check out that. So thank you so much for joining. Thank you. I'm super excited. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to just talk about writing stuff. I'm excited to not be in my house, stuck in my house. <laughs> Yes, I have been for the past six months, you know how it goes. Absolutely. Well, I am absolutely delighted and honored because this is the first time we've ever had a um, more more than email correspondence. But obviously we have been corresponding for years over. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I was very honored to be invited to be a, a, a resident writing coach in your writing program. For, the, for listeners who don't know, I do share these posts and things. And um, of course, even before that, Becca and Angela were, are still two of my absolute all-time literary heroes because oh. you guys taught me so much and had such a massive impact in my writing journey so yeah first of all before we dive in thanks oh please that's so awesome that's why we do what we do you know I mean we uh just are always looking for first of all you know what's wrong with with our writing what do we struggle with because we almost always see that that's a common problem for lots of people and that's really our goal is just to help as many people as we can with what we've learned so that's so awesome thanks for sharing no not at all thank you guys for writing your book so okay let's dive in then tell everyone a little bit more about you and your personal writing journey and how you how you came to where you are today well i i don't have like a normal story i i wasn't one of those people who wrote things when they were little. I was fairly unimaginative as a child. Um, I never, never dreamed that I would, I would be an author. Um, I was married, just married and had no kids. My husband and I had no money. We were just, you know, scraping, scraping by and something came up. We wanted to donate to some organization. We just did not have any money. And so I literally, literally prayed and said, all right, God, I need money. How can I make some money to give to this organization? And God very clearly said to me, write a book. And, you know, looking back, I think, okay, that's like the most ridiculous thing for God or anybody else to say when you're trying to make money. I mean, you know, it's very hard to make a living as an author, but I didn't know that. So I said, okay. And so <laughs> I, I wrote a chapter book because I was teaching elementary school at the time. And that was what I was reading to my kids. And it was horrible, but... Um, <laughs> I really loved the process. Like I just fell in love with the, the process of writing and felt like I kind of had a knack for it. So I started writing, I, I wrote chapter books and I went to picture books and that was way too hard. So I went to young adult books and kind of found my wheelhouse there. Um, and I just learned and I, I researched and I studied and I felt like I was finally getting to the point where my fiction was was almost there. It was, you know, good enough to, to probably be published. And Angela and I um, put out the Emotion Thesaurus and it kind of took off and went a little viral. And I realized, holy crap, this, something is happening here and I need to pay attention to this. And so uh, we sidelined both of us our fiction so that we could focus on the nonfiction. 
um, because it was just so rewarding to, to hear, like you were saying, people, you know, say to us, oh my gosh, I read your book and this light bulb went off and I, my writing, I just feel like it's so much better now and I'm achieving the goals that I've always had. So that's kind of why we, why I am where, where I am today is just that kind of unorthodox um, journey. It really took like a supernatural event to get me uh, into this line of work, but I'm super excited to be here. Uh, yeah, I, I love that so much for so many different reasons. And I, I, I think the most amazing thing about your work is that it doesn't matter where you are in your writing journey, you can still get epiphanies and revelations and learn new things from your books and from, um, from your blogs. And even like the last book, the, the Occupation Thesaurus, I still... <laughs> you know, I class myself as a, as a reasonably good writer now, you know, and, uh, I still, I was like, Oh yeah. You know, as I have like a number of revelations, I'm like, Oh really? You know, how have I missed this? But actually that's why it's so important to be a perpetual student and to keep learning. And, and yeah. Uh, so, so are you still writing fiction in the background or are you focused solely on the nonfiction now? I, I keep trying. I keep having goals um, and plans, but I, I just don't have time. I don't mm. have time to do. And you and I have talked a little bit about this just with you having to make decisions about, you know, where you're going to focus your time. I, 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 we barely have time to do the things that we need to do for, for all the nonfiction stuff. So fiction really has taken a backseat. It's, it's, we're not doing a whole lot of, of that um, right now. Uh, we've just got so many other things on the go. I 100% understand and feel the pain. And it's what, what the worst thing for me is the, the pull because I love both equally and I'm not satisfied by just one, which makes it doubly hard because I'm not a fast writer. And it's actually time-wise, it's really bloody difficult to, to manage both and do both well enough that you're not doing a disservice to both. And I sort of almost feel like I could just have one rather than two but anyway anyway okay so for anyone who hasn't heard of you guys tell listeners a little bit more about all of the um thesauri that you have because it's not just one it's not just the occupation thesaurus yeah i know you've mentioned the emotion thesaurus but you have a whole raft of them yeah we basically have a collection of resources to help writers with different areas of descriptive writing um the first really big lesson I learned as a writer was about showing instead of telling. I remember very clearly people had been talking about it. I had no idea what they were talking about. And a critique partner of mine um, explained to me what it was and why it was preferential. And then she just redid like this short little paragraph that I had done as showing. And it was like, oh, I mean, I was just, oh my gosh, this changes everything. And I really believe that that plays into so many different aspects of our writing. And when we can figure out how to show all the different elements in a really effective and um, effective and efficient way, then it takes our writing to the next level. So that's kind of where Angela's and my books focus. We have a book on emotion that talks about different emotions and how to show your character's emotion instead of telling readers he was angry. It's how to show it through what the character's doing, what they're thinking, what's happening internally as they're feeling those, those feelings. 
Um, and then we, we turned our attention to character traits, positive traits, negative traits, where do they come from? How do they manifest? Um, and again, how to show that your character is narcissistic or uh, optimistic or, or whatever it is without you just coming right out and saying it. It's much more appealing to readers for them to see those traits in action and kind of infer uh, those things without it being laid out on the table so, so directly for them. Um, then we, we looked at settings, uh, rural and urban settings, and all the different sensory descriptions that you can use to, to write your settings in a multi-sensory way, which of course is going to pull readers more firmly into uh, the experience. And then, oh, we did a book on emotional wounds, which was... Um, Loved that one. You know, that one, I think it was the most difficult to write because it was just so heavy. And I mean, we were, you know, we wanted to write about things that happened in the character's past. So you know who they are in, in the current story that you're writing. You have to know what's happened before so that you know who they are today. And then you can figure out what they have to do in the future in order to be fulfilled and for them to complete their character arc. So we had to explore all these different um, traumatic events and wounding events that are real and they are based in real life. And that was, um, it was difficult. It was difficult to research and, and we really were worried about how to present it in a way that was sensitive and not, you know, um, taking these real things that people have gone through and, and, and not being careful about that. Um, but in many ways, that one I think was one of the, the deepest ones just because mm. it, the more we researched, the more we realized we had to be so, so careful with the content and get it all right. And so it, it, it required a lot of work, but it was very rewarding to hear people say, oh my gosh, I have, you know, this thing happened to me and you totally nailed it. I have this quality and this is what I do now. And even in our own lives, we kind of saw, um, oh my gosh, yes, this, this is why I do this. It's because this happened to me. So it's always interesting to be able to, to see real life and how it can cross into fiction and, and how to be able to uh, mirror that. And then the latest one is uh, the Occupation of the Source, which just looks at different jobs and how they can tie into different parts of the story. Instead of it just, you know, picking something that's interesting or, or unique, um, the importance of, of picking your character's job carefully and thoughtfully. Mm. So it can strengthen the story. I think um, the emotion thesaurus and the emotional wound thesaurus are the two that had probably the biggest, Im so there are a couple of other craft books, but of all the craft books that I've read, I think those two are two of the most significant books that have impacted my prose and helped it like level up the characterization and the depth. So yeah, I, I like rave about them at every single opportunity. Uh, but we are here today to talk about your latest thesaurus, which is the occupation thesaurus. And I'm trying to speak slowly so I don't get tongue tied over that. For some reason it's a tongue twister. Uh, so I was lucky enough to read an arc and thank you so much for that. Um, but your other thesauri have been focused more on broad topics, as we've said, like emotions, settings and wounds. So what made you guys drill down into such a detailed aspect of storytelling for this one? Well, we always have in-depth discussions when we're trying to figure out what we're going to explore next and which thesauruses we're going to turn into books. Um, we get a lot of suggestions from people because they, they read our books and they like what we've done and they're like, oh, if you could just write one on, you know, whatever. 
And we had a lot of people who were asking for a source surrounding jobs. And at first we were honestly kind of like, really? I'm like, what, what, what does that even look like? I mean, how, how deep can you go with that? But we had so many people asking for it that we thought, you know what, let's look into it and see, um, you know, what we come up with. And as we started just kind of researching and brainstorming and talking about the different ways that, um, the different, the, the ways that an occupation can say different things, um, we realized, oh my gosh, this, this is really impactful for characterization. Um, because, you know, you don't want to ever stereotype, but certain jobs need a certain skill set or they, they need a certain um, character trait in order for a person to be really successful. So when you say that a person is an accountant, you know that they're going to be good at math. You know that they are going to be probably somewhat structured. Um, and obviously we want to play with those stereotypes and not end up with these cardboard characters that are all the same. But we realized this really can do a lot of the characterization work. And then we realized how it actually can, can tie into the story itself and the character's job can either further the story or it can inhibit the character's growth in the story. You know, because you may give them a job that seems very background or not, like it's not, it doesn't have much significance, but as they go through the story, they're going to have to pull on things that they've learned in their job or things that they use in their job or people that they know in their job in order for them to succeed and to fulfill their character arc. Or in the converse, you know, you could give them a job that um, is going to hinder them and it's going to pull up roadblocks that are going to make it harder for them to get what they're going. And, and as we were looking at all of this, we just realized, wow, there's so much here. I mean, we, we had no idea that there was so much that could surround the, the choice of a character's career. And that was really why uh, we decided to move forward with it because we realized that there, there are a lot of ways you can use it to tie into different elements and then to kind of pull them all together. So I think that possibly starts to answer the, the next question. Um, but, so I... <laughs> spent a long time thinking that uh, jobs and occupations were just a throwaway addition. I just, you know, I, I had a character, I picked a job and psh, that was that. So for those writers who are, I'm going to use the word ignorant, like me, <laughs> um, can, you, can you talk to them specifically and tell them why occupations are so important? Because I know I will never ever look at a character's occupation in the way that I used to ever again. Well, again, and this is where I love my job because everything that I find that I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm such an idiot. How did I not know? It's, it's usually something that's universal that so many people don't realize or, or just need, you know, the switch turned on. Um, I mentioned characterization. I think that, that occupations can go a long way towards helping you characterize, characterize, again, with showing instead of telling. You know, you could go through a laundry list of your character's um, personality traits and their habits and their quirks, but you can skip a lot of that just by sharing what their occupation is or, or having a scene with them doing a portion of their job. They're going about their job and through that, they're revealing personality. They're revealing likes and dislikes. 
intolerances or biases and I mean, so many different things that you can show just as they're doing their job. So it obviously can do a lot to help characterize and anything you can do to shorten the reader's learning curve in terms of them getting to know the character, then they're going to get into the story so much faster because they feel like, you know, they already know the character and they have this connection with them. So it obviously can characterize. We, we talked about um, how it plays into the story itself and can either um, help the character to achieve their goals in the story, or it can hinder them from achieving their goals, which obviously has a great purpose too. Conflict, um, every scene has to have conflict. It's a huge part of successful stories and jobs have tons of conflict surrounding them and they just come, it comes with the territory. So you can easily pull different conflict scenarios from the character's job to um, meet that need in your story. Theme, you know, you can use it to um, support or undergird whatever message you're trying to convey. You can use it to hint at emotional wounds because a lot of times that can play into a character or a real person's choice of what they want to do. It's just, it's really kind of phenomenal how many different ways um, an occupation, the different elements that it can touch on. And it almost becomes like a, like a, a thread that goes through everything and just pulls it all together and makes it much more seamless in a, but in a very subtle way. Um, it's kind of genius. I mean, I'm like you, I, I always would choose jobs that I thought were interesting. That was kind of what I did. I mean, my first book had a glass blower in it because I just thought that that was a totally cool artistic creative job. It had nothing to do with the story itself, you know? And I realize now like, what the heck? What is this? Where did it even come from? So, I mean, I think that this is just a common thing. You, you know, characterization, super important, plot, super important. Setting is pretty important, you know, oh yeah, he needs a job, um, you know, I'll just pick that one. But it really can do so much more. It really can. And when we, when we get towards the end of this interview, if I remember, I will explain to listeners the revelation that I had and the change and impact and how it's connected. But I want, uh, I'll do that after I've asked all the questions so it makes sense for, for why I did what I did. Um, also, my vote is totally for Conflict Thesaurus next. <laughs> If there's like a poll that you're going to run, my hand is up. But I know you've been having the blogs, but I'm like, yeah, please, please put that one in a book. Um, that okay. one is pretty popular, that one. I mean, I can't speak because we haven't talked about it. We're still in the middle sure. of just exploring it. But yeah, we've gotten a lot of good feedback about that one. Yeah, so. absolutely. Uh, okay, so you guys talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in a number of your thesauri. So can you talk about how that's important in storytelling and how it may link to a character's occupation? Well, first of all, it, it's it's not Abraham Maslow, it's, it's Uncle Maslow. This is, <laughs> Angela and I are like, I don't know if we have a book where we haven't had a section on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, we just discovered really early on, it might've been when we were researching character traits and where they come from. Um, it, just as a refresher, since this is, you know, psychology 101 and quite honestly, most of us probably don't remember a lot of what we learned in college. But um, it's the idea that, you know, you have certain needs, every human being has certain needs that have to be met. And if these needs are not being met, they become drivers, they become motivators and they um, make us change our behavior so that we can fill the voids that we have. So 
if your physiological needs are not being met, you know, if you have no food or no water or no shelter, you are quickly going to take steps to rectify that situation. You are going to do things that you may not normally have done um, in order to put that, uh, those physiological needs back in place because they're super important. Um, you also have safety and security. You have love and belonging. It's that connectedness to other people. That's going to be a big driver in helping us make decisions, esteem and recognition, and then self-fulfillment. So these are things that in basic human psychology, we know that these things become motivators for us. And the same, we believe, is really true for our characters. And if we can make our characters mirror real life as much as possible, that the what do you call it? The philosophy of, you know, what happens to us and how we're kind of built, then readers are really going to understand our characters and they're going to connect with them more because they see themselves in our characters, even if it's on a subconscious level. So needs play, I think, a huge part um, in our lives and should play a really big part in our characters' lives. When you think about occupations, um, when you think about your own jobs, jobs that you have had in your life, they all were made, you made the decision to pursue a certain job for a certain reason. There was a reason behind why, you know, you took whatever job that you had. Um, maybe it's because it was something fun that you were really interested in or because your friends worked there and you wanted to hang out with your friends. Um, people choose jobs all the time because they're looking for esteem and recognition. They want to be lauded and they want to get the accolades and they want people to look at them. Um, people choose jobs because they're convenient and they just need a paycheck. You know, they, they need to meet that physiological need. You've lost your home, you're living in your car. It doesn't matter how much money the job is going to give you. And it, it may not be the most fulfilling, but you're going to take it because that is going to meet that need. So very often I do believe our needs play into that decision in our life because we know that needs impact the choices that we make and the choice of a career or a job is a really big decision. So that is going to impact us a lot of times. And so when we can take that into account with our characters, then the job becomes, again, not something random or something, as you said, throwaway or background. It's something that is, is deeply connected to the character. Um, and that is, I think, is, as often as we can do that with our, our storytelling details, we want to do that. You know, we want to make it meaningful. We want to, there to be a reason for the decisions that we make. And that's just a natural, I think, a natural um, impetus behind the decisions that we make for the different jobs that we take on. Yeah. And I've seen you, um, I, I've seen you write that sort of in and around that phrase a few times that the, all the details are so important. And I can't tell you how much I agree and how, much more that's becoming um, like salient to me and how important it's becoming because I know we sort of say, oh, as, as writing coaches and, and teachers that all the details matter, but really like every single thing in your book should have a reason and a justification and nothing should be throwaway because every 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 item that you describe um has the ability to either be symbolic or foreshadowing or you know um a chekhov's gun so yeah like i i am really 
Maybe that's a thesaurus, detail options. Anyway, anyway, sorry, I'm getting carried away here. But uh, yeah, where was I? Right, okay, conflict. You've mentioned conflict a couple of times and everybody knows that conflict is at the root of all good stories. So how can writers use um, their character's occupation to actually create conflict in the story? Well, it's really, um, I think this is kind of the most, um, obvious maybe um, ways that an occupation can serve your story because we know that every scene has to have conflict and um, we have to come up with different kinds of conflicts. You can't just keep having the same conflict scenario over and over and sometimes that's a challenge. That's why we actually are doing the conflict thesaurus now at the blog to provide different you know, opportunities, brainstorming ideas for different kinds of conflict. Sometimes it's hard to, to figure out what that should be in your scene but a job, it just, it just has a ton of conflict in it already. I mean, you ask people, what part of your life causes you the most stress? And 90% of the people are going to say their job. I mean, there's just so much there. So we have this whole section in the book about different kinds of conflict that you can encounter at work. There's relationship conflict. You know, you have, you do not work, even people who work from home do not work in isolation. There are customers, there are clients, there are um, service people, delivery people. I mean, there's janitors, there's all kinds of people that you come in contact with that can create conflict scenarios. Um, you have power imbalances. You know, you have anywhere you have a hierarchy, there are going to be issues with the people above and the people below. There are things that are completely outside of your control, um, a merger, um, a change of ownership, an economic downturn, um, layoffs, uh, just all kinds of things, even just the threat of those things is conflict at work. So there's just a ton of different opportunities. Um, moral conflict is maybe my favorite one because it's, there's so much, um, there's so much depth there. You know, you go to work and you have your values and your beliefs in place. And then depending on what needs you have and what's missing in your life, your morals get tested. You know, and very often this happens at work. Somebody who um, is having trouble making their bills, um, they may be tempted to dip into the petty cash. Uh, you know, it's just $10. I mean, the company can afford $10. I need this, you know, in order for my kids to eat. And just different things that you, because you have these really important needs that you're, you're subconsciously um, trying to shore up, our, our morals are always being tested, our values, and, and that happens very, very easily um, at work. So to me, that's the most obvious way that the occupation can serve you because it just, with a very simple brainstorming session, you can come up with tons of complex scenarios that make sense because your character is already at that workplace doing that job. You're not having to go out and create situations where that conflict can happen. It also has the different levels of conflict. You know, there's big, huge, like life-changing conflict, getting fired, getting laid off, having a fling with a coworker, all of these things that cause major issues. Um, and then, there, but there's the minor, like micro-level conflict that we also need in our story. We need those little, agitation level um, things that happen. He took my stapler. Um, I left my lunch at home and now what am I going to do? My internet is down and all of these things that just kind of build until something happens and the character blows up and they make a big situation out of nothing and now they have this hole that they've got to dig themselves out of and they've made things worse. 
it's, um, there's just so much there for conflict at work. Yeah, and I was sort of giggling to myself quietly because in my old job, when I used to have a day job, there was, oh, so much conflict. I know what she says through gritted teeth. <laughs> oh, oh, I used to, uh, I used to fondly name. <laughs> I probably shouldn't admit this on the podcast, but I, I had, you know, sort of frenemies and nemesises and arch nemeses. And like, genuinely, these are people in my head. You know, I, it, was a, it was a way to talk about these things with writing friends in code so that nobody ever knew who I was talking about. But uh, yeah, oh, so much conflict in the workplace. And uh, yeah, I still have like emotional wounds from... <laughs> from the conflict I, the, the worst of all was being told my personality I, I think I've said this on the podcast before but I was told my personality was a risk to my reputation which, oh come on yeah like I literally went home and sobbed about that because my personality is me and I just think it's Wait. hilarious because now my personality basically is my job <laughs> to what runs my job so uh, yeah fuck him and his uh, nasty opinions anyway oh. Right, moving swiftly onwards. This is um, my favorite. Well, this is something that I am becoming more passionate about and I'm developing a bit of an obsession for story theme. So whether or not there's something that I end up writing in the future, I don't know, but um, I am, yeah. So my first series has like an overarching theme, but like it's a bit wishy-washy in each of the books, but that's just par for the course in your, in your like writing development. But my next book that I'm writing after I finish this one, I more or less started with, with the theme and the, this is where my obsession is coming from. Like, I think it's so important. It is the, the core of, a, of every story's web of connectivity. And um, so I'm curious on your thoughts about how you can tie uh, a character's occupation into story theme. I love that web of connectivity because that really to me kind of describes what theme does. Um, and it's so hard. I mean, I think this is one of like the things that people don't really um, learn about until they're, they reach a certain point because it's so daunting and it's mm -hmm. so kind of ethereal and like, uh, you know, nebulous. Mm -hmm. But when the theme in a story is done right and the symbolism and, and the messaging and everything is, is um, when you do it the right way, it just, it, it's like the foundation for the whole story. And it's, you know, it's gotta be subtle, but not too subtle. It's, it's, oh my gosh, it's really hard to do. So kudos to you for like making that your, you know, your thing to, to look into and to, to really um, study and get right. Cause I think that that's hugely important. It's funny um, because in, in my second nonfiction book, so the 10 steps to hero, I, I, there's a whole chapter in there called the web of connectivity. And as I was writing it, I was like, there is so much more here that could be explored. And, and that's, I think where I ignited the obsession. It, and so it's funny because so many of us writers don't know what we think until we start, until we've written it. And then it like just, you know, expands into these 
<laughs> you know, seven book series or whatever, like nonfiction, you know, thesauri and all of this stuff. So yeah, I do definitely think that there is a web of connectivity. You know, it's it's that it's that core of storytelling. I think it's the science yeah. of storytelling. But um, anyway, I'm going to stop talking. Sorry. No, no, no. Well, we. It's funny because we did the same exact thing where we <laughs> created a symbolism and motif thesaurus that was not turned into a book. Um, it's at One Stop for Writers. Um, and we now, we look at it, I probably shouldn't have said it because now people are gonna go look at it and they're gonna be like, this is crap, what the heck? Because we look at it and we're like, oh my gosh, we, we need to do so much more with this. But at the time, that's all that we knew. You know, yeah. we had learned, we were so excited about it. And so we created this resource and now we've learned so much more and that's on our list, our never ending list of things to do is to shore up and expand that thesaurus to make it kind of to include, you know, what we've learned in the meantime. But occupations, um, you know, anything can be a symbol, really, and anything um, can tie into your message. And occupations, some of them really do lend themselves to certain themes and, and thematic messages. If you're writing um, a, a theme about justice and your character's job is um, police work, or they're a lawyer, they're a judge, maybe they're even a social worker, you know, they experienced injustice in their childhood and they don't want that to happen with, you know, kids and they want to save them from that and they want to change the system. I mean, there's so many different ways that when you identify your theme, you can give your character an occupation that is going to um, support that and just give you all those little boosts throughout the story that boost your theme without you having to come right out and say, you know, this is what the story is about. Um, I look at The Greatest Showman. I think that that's a, a really clear example. You know, the theme in that movie is um, you do not have to be loved by everyone. Everyone mm -hmm. doesn't have to love and accept you. Um, but that's what the main character is trying to do throughout the whole story. You know, that's why he becomes an entertainer because he is craving that recognition and that esteem. But what kind of entertainer is he? He's a ringmaster at a circus. Well, that's gonna guarantee that a large portion of society is not going to accept him. They're not going to give him what he's after. So it's this constant struggle between, you know, what he wants and what he really actually needs. And you see it constantly because of his job. So that's just one example of how you can you can tie the, the occupation into the theme and it's it's hard because i think most people don't um they don't plan the theme i think mm -hmm. they don't they don't start with it and so you get through the story this has been my experience anyway you get through the story and after you've drafted it and you're reading through it you're like oh my gosh there's my theme i think that that's the way a lot of it's so um instinctual it's not like really obvious and that of course sucks because then you get all the way through the story and you've written everything and then you have to go back and, and shore that up and kind of tie it together and, and that makes the job a much more difficult than if you start with the theme and identify it at the beginning, you know, it's much, much easier because then you can plan around it. It doesn't mean it's impossible because I mean, my gosh, that's the way I wrote like my first four books. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just the way that it works. Um, so, but it really can, it really can tie directly into that if you do it carefully and you know what your theme is. I think theme is so 
difficult though as a writer to represent to capture to weave in and I think that's why so many people don't start with it and the thing is as well like you you get told so many different things oh you know you should start with the plot you should start with the characters you should start with the world building ah you should start with whichever bit comes to you whichever your not natural storytelling um fingers go to first uh but you know the, the point and the lesson here is you need to include all the aspects like yes. no matter what happens you have to include it all and you know if it just so happy I'm just I can't honestly say that I will always start with theme it's just that the story and and two particular characters fell into my head fully formed and the theme came with them so I've been able to work the theme uh, much, much easier. And that I think is why I was able to so quickly connect what you were saying in the occupational thesaurus to, to, um, to this character, which I will tell you after the next question. Uh, I know I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I've already told you, but I'm going to tell everybody else anyway. So same question. Uh, how do you link a character's occupation to their emotional wound or their flaw? Well, I think that this goes back to the whole human needs situation. You know, we have these things that have happened to us in our past, they're traumatic, they're debilitating, and we have changed our behavior um, to try to keep those things from happening and to try to keep us from experiencing that kind of vulnerability again. Um, but in trying to shield ourselves, we very often void ourselves in one of those human need areas because we're trying to keep ourselves safe, but we end up developing dysfunctional behaviors and things that keep us from being able to connect with other people or from being able to succeed in these areas where we really want to succeed. So just as human needs play into occupations, emotional wounds very much do also. Um, they are very often a driver, again, for the decisions that we make. And I think a lot of times um, a character can choose an occupation um, because, and it's, I think it's subconscious, it's not, we don't, you know, go around saying, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Let me pick something that has to do with this really horrible thing that happened to me. It's just something, it's kind of one of those um, really deep, latent things that I think happens. Um, if you've got, um, well, okay, so I had, my kids, I, I live in Florida, and my kids very young had swim lessons because there are pools and lakes and, I mean, there's just water everywhere here. And we went through a company called Infant Swim Resource. And they basically, they, they take babies really and they teach them to roll over if they fall in the water. So my daughter was 22 months, my son was 18 months. And you know they would get in the water with them and they would teach them to roll over and float and then they can scream their head off until somebody comes and gets them and they're safe in the water. It was totally money well spent. But the guy who founded that company, when he was 19 years old, he found his neighbor's toddler in the ditch, drowned. And that was such a formative, horrible situation for him that he determined he was never, he wanted to do something about childhood drowning and the current techniques, they were not working. So he changed literally the course of his life so that he could study and research and find methods and techniques that were going to, to keep kids safe around water. So that's just a, like a real example of how an emotional wound can really drive someone to, um, to want to keep people from experiencing the same thing, to want to um, enact justice and, and help people. Um, lots of ways that an emotional wound can, can 
determine what you're going to do with your life so that it can be a really meaningful thing that is going to, to keep that thing from happening to you or to other people. I think it also plays in from an avoidance standpoint. You know, a lot of times if we have an unresolved wound that we haven't dealt with, um, the character is going to very often, their occupation may be related in some way to that on a subconscious level. If you look at a few good men, um, with Tom Cruise, you know, he's a, he's a lawyer in the JAG Corps. His dad was also a lawyer, the most famous trial lawyer in his time. He helped end segregation. Like he's the big wig guru, like up on the pedestal. Um, and the character, Kathy has a really good relationship with his dad, loves his dad, becomes a lawyer, but has never tried a case in the courtroom. All he does is plea bargain. Every case he plea bargains, it's like a big joke in the office. How many plea bargain cases is he up to? I mean, like, who does this? And it's because he's terrified of, of, he wants to be a lawyer. He wants to be a lawyer like his dad, but he's so scared that if he does, he's never going to be able to live up to his dad's reputation. He's always going to be second best. He's never going to be able to distinguish himself. So he like picks a job that gets him as close to that as he can, but not one where he's actually going to have to test himself. So Wounds, they just define, they don't, they don't define, I'm sorry. They, um, they impact us in so many different ways. And I think that absolutely can tie into a choice of an occupation. Oh, I had goosebumps when you were telling me that story. I mean, what a horrendous, I just, yeah, I will be thinking about that, you know, for a while because I just, I can't even imagine how, I, I can't imagine being the parents, but also I can't imagine being him. And what a wonderful human to have turned such a horrendous experience into something so positive. Um, because I think that's the other thing. And, and that's usually the difference between a hero and a villain. You know, these wounds and experiences define both characters in a way. Um, but I know you said they don't define, but it, you know, it, it changes that, you know, their their life courses and usually the hero will triumph in spite of the experience whereas the villain will descend and you know fall into the pit of villainy because of their experience and and you know ultimately that comes down to choice and the human choice that we make um, and so yes it isn't a, they don't define them but it comes down to their choices but um yeah, the other thing that I was going to say, I, I think Disney movies do theme and also like character occupation really well. Um, and they usually tie in, like I was thinking about Cars and like the movie Cars. I think actually, is that Disney or Pixar? Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. And also Monsters, Inc. and Planes, all very good examples uh, of uh, films that do theme very well and, and also character occupations. Okay, so I am going to tell listeners, because I've been talking about this the whole time. Um, yeah, okay, so I am, I, I, this story came to me as I walked past a lamppost, which is why I'm always posting lamppost pictures. It's so weird, Aww. but um, I know I even have, like listeners won't be able to hear, but I have like a little mini Lego lamppost. I'm actually buying a full-on lamppost in my office as well uh, in, in, in memory. But anyway, this is not the point. Um, so this story I, is completely unrelated to my young adult series, but I have this character called Mal, and um, he, his wound is that he lost a sibling 
uh, when he was six or five, six, maybe seven, something like this. I haven't worked out all of the details, but he was very young. And he basically blames himself for this death because his mum was not a, very responsible. And so he always feels like he should, he's trying to make up his whole life and save people, save everybody in his life. He tries to save yeah he tries to save everybody so originally i had him as a um, barman because that's what everybody does when they're a teenager they work as waitresses they work in coffee shops they work as barmen and that made you know i just throw it away and that was it he was going to be a barman and then i was reading the occupation thesaurus and some of the blogs that you were posting in around the launch and i was just like actually this this you can connect it so much more to the theme and I can create so much more conflict if I just pick something that plays to his wound. So what I came up with was to have him working in some kind of animal rescue, animal shelter, um, somewhere where he, his job quite literally is to save animals, but it's not, you know, it's not like he's a doctor where he's saving people and it's, an exact replication you know he is saving something else without it being overt and the way you know that you can create conflict is by having perhaps animals or instances where he can't save them you know so that can create conflict for him and or where he has to make the choice whether or not to save um animals which obviously would then morally give him a conflict because his values are to to save everything that he possibly can so obviously I don't want to go into too much more detail because I don't want to give loads of spoilers um but yeah that like I literally synced it up to loads of different aspects of the story and it's completely thanks to you guys so yeah so thank awesome. you so much I love hearing that that's a really good like distillation of you know what it can do and Really, it's, it really is just a matter of just finding the right one. And then the, kind of the pieces all just fall into place. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Like all of a sudden it was, the pen, all of the pennies dropped and I was like, oh, I can connect it here and here and here and here. And I was like, oh yeah, I can never do a throwaway job ever again. Damn it. <gasps> oh, okay, right, some fun questions now. Uh, so one of my patrons asked, what was the strangest thing you ever needed to research for one of your books? Um, you know, I'm not like super adventurous. Um, Angela and I joke because she's really the risk taker of the group. She's the one that has all the like crazy ideas and she comes <laughs> she's like super excited about them. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that, that doesn't happen very often. But sometimes I do have to say, come on, Ange, that is not going to work. Um, <laughs> he has great ideas. So most of the time we try to, we try to make it work. I think probably just when I was writing, um, maybe the wound thesaurus. I mean, we, I had to research some really awful um, situations, you know, being stalked, um, different scenarios for different things. Like, um, you know, one of the entries in that book is, is accidentally killing someone. And, you know, one of the fields is different examples of that. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, how many different ways can you accidentally kill someone? I mean, just, you know, there were times when I was writing that book when I would have to go to my husband and say, dude, if, if I get hit by a truck, do not take my search history like for real because this I'm just this is for my book none of this stuff is am I actually like you know curious about on a personal level um and then the negative trait the source was just that was a little bizarre because we were constantly reading about um negative characteristics and and flaws um so you know we had to look up you know <laughs> 
about narcissists and um, people who are promiscuous and people who are, are cruel and evil. And what was funny about that one was we had to, um, <laughs> we would like email each other and go, I think I might have this. I think this, this might be like my problem. It's like, you know, the psychology <laughs> students that they start thinking they have the disorders that they're studying about or medical students with the hypochondria. That was, we would have to constantly say, no, 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 you are not flaky. You are not, you know, whatever it is, you're just fine. So um, that probably isn't very strange, but that was difficult and a little disturbing to have to read about. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. I'm always saying like never ever. I think it goes for any writer. Like you just cannot go through their like Google search history because it's so awkward. I know I have spent a long time recently. The book I was talking about is called The Scent of Death. And basically he gets punched on the nose and then can smell how people are going to die. Like the Ooh. situations in which they get the, in the situations in which they're going to die. So I have spent an, uh, like an excessive amount of time researching the smells of death like, oh, like, <laughs> like you just it's really uncomfortable like god forbid my son ever and my son can read as well so I'm always like oh don't look at my computer <laughs> lock it down lock it down um but yeah oh the things we search <sighs> I have uh one more patron question so um, th this patron says, I don't believe you guys, as in you and Angela, live close to one another. So how did you come to a collaboration where it seems like you guys are so close, it, it's almost like you're in the same office every day. Your working relationship is so seamless. So I guess they're wondering how you guys manage that or how, how did it come to be? Um, well, it, we are very far apart. I'm in South Florida, which is like, this, as far south as you can get in the United States. And she's in Canada. And I mean, I always say that she's somewhere in the Arctic Circle, even though it's not true, but it seems like it. I mean, when she's posting pictures of snow in May and crazy things like that. But um, we started, uh, we both started writing at the same time. And we both went to critiquecircle.com, which is an online critique group. You go and you can share portions of your story and people read it and they tell you what they think and you get points for critiquing people's work and then you can post yours. And it's a really actually great site for people who are looking for critique partners. Um, and maybe you don't have a group in your area or you don't really wanna do it you know, face to face. It's, it's a really good group, but that's where we met. We managed, again, this is where I swear God comes into the whole thing, but we managed to meet, there's thousands and thousands of people on there, all different genres, different places. We ended up in the same, like somehow we found each other's work, read each other's work, loved each other's fiction. So we became critique partners. We did that for, um, I think like four years. Um, different partners came and went and joined our group, but it was Angela and I were just the ones that, that stuck together. And then I got pregnant and I was going to have my first child. And so I was gonna take a break from writing because I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, focus. And I really think that may have been the end of my writing career because I know how I am and I get, it's hard for me to, to split my passions and to mm -hmm. focus on, on different things. And so I know I would have been just all about being a mom and all of that. Um, I was six months pregnant and Angela sent me an email and said, if we're ever going to sell our fiction books, we have to have an online presence. And so I'm going to start a blog and I think you should do it with me because it would be so much easier for us to do it together. We could split the work and everything else. And I was like, 
dang it, she's totally right. I mean, I was like totally not in a mind space of, I mean, I was huge and my whole life was about to be upside down, but it was totally the right choice. So we started the blog. Um, it was called the Bookshelf Muse at that time, and it's since become Writers Helping Writers. And, um, and then we just, we went from there. So we've really been together since 2004 in some capacity. Um, we started the blog in 2008. We published our first book in 2012. And honestly, part of our um, seeming uh, seamlessness is we just are incredibly complementary. Um, her strengths balance out my weaknesses and vice versa. And we each have a, a really, um, a really strong respect for each other. That's kind of the foundation of our relationship is that we have to have mutual respect. Um, we respect each other's time. We are careful in the way that we say things. Um, we, you know, if somebody is really busy and something happens and they can't work as much, then the other person picks up the slack. I mean, that's just kind of been the way that we have always done things. Um, in terms of our, our writing seeming, um, like it's, you know, we often say, hear people say, well, your books sound like one person wrote it. It doesn't sound like two different people writing with two different styles. And with that, we really do have very different styles, but um, we split up the work. We each write half of it. We swap it. We edit the other person's half. And then we swap again and we edit again. So through that process of, of kind of tweaking and, and rewriting and rephrasing things, it all ends up with our fingerprints on, on all of it. Um, and that's really how we, uh, we, we co-write. Um, it's, worked out really really well for us I find um collaboration and co-writing deeply fascinating because I've always been um like even when I was in the corporate world I struggled to work in a team I'm very much uh like a loner I've always do it myself yeah like it's terrible like my wife as well she is such a team player she is the exact opposite of me when it comes, you know, and for her team at work is just the pinnacle of importance. Whereas I always used to, used to get frustrated with people and just, you know, be like, oh, I'm just going to do it myself because it's quicker or whatever. But more and more like in, and, and the, this is the most ridiculous, ironic thing because, you know, I came to writing to work for myself and just do stuff on my own. And actually the, you know, the deeper and longer I'm in this bloody industry, the more I'm like, yeah, I keep starting all these collaborations and doing things with other people. And now I co-host a podcast and, and I am almost certain we are going to venture into several other business streams together. And, um, you know, I've co-written books now and yeah, like it's just, it's yeah it's that it's irony for you but um yeah I, I'm fascinated by like the voice and just the relationships and how and how people work together and how lucky you guys are to have found each other who you know when you complement each other in such a, a massive way yeah that's it's it's really amazing I, I mean Angela in my relationship I mean she is basically she's basically my, my work husband. I mean, we just are, you know, our relationship mirrors very much my relationship with my husband. I mean, you know, we just have the same kinds of, um, 
like I said, different areas that we are strong in and different areas that we're, we're not so good at. And we just, we complement each other. And, um, and that's, you know, I think the key to any, to any collaboration is that you have to, you have to surround yourself with people who are not just like you and who mm. do things, um, that you can't do because, um, you need to do the things that, that you do. And my husband has this phrase that only do what only you can do. And because if everybody is trying to do everything, then, I mean, you're going to be incredibly inefficient and things are not going to get done. So it's really, really nice to have a partner who is the visionary and has the big ideas and dreams big and, um, you know, comes to you with those things and you can talk about them and, um, and figure out what's practical and, and what may need tweaking or what we just don't have time for, you know, whatever it's, um, it's good. It's all good. I love that phrase that your husband um, said. It reminds me a little bit of um, the big leap. I think, is it Gay Hendricks or something? Or Gay gay something, anyway. And um, they talk about the zone of genius and like the zone of expertise and the zone of something else and then like all of the other non-zones. But really you are at your best. And, you know, when you are in your zone of, of genius, I think it is. Anyway, clearly I need to go back and reread the book. <laughs> Anyway, this is always my favorite question. <laughs> this is the Ravel Author Podcast. So tell me about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. <laughs> Sasha, I, I have no answer for this question. I, I literally, I have been thinking and thinking. My, my husband, he, okay, when I met my husband in college, he, I was part of a group um, at, at university and we were all friends. We would all hang out. And he had these stories that were like, so like far out, like things he had done and run-ins with the police and, you know, all of these different things. And we were all just kind of like, what, who is this guy? <laughs> and I swore that he was making it up because all these things don't happen like to one person. Um, and then now that we're older and I have, we have had kids of our own and I'm raising his children, I realize, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's all totally true. Cause now my kids, these things are happening to my kids. I don't know what's going on with his family, but he would share these stories. And then when we would be together and we would be sharing stories, I would be sharing stories and he would say, why are, that's my story. Why are you telling that story? And I'm like, I don't have any stories like this. I was so like a rule follower growing up and compliant and just, you know, follow the rules. I, I have very few stories of my own. Um, but I, I will tell you, oh, and this on, again, my husband's bad influence on me. Um, he used to, he had this Mustang that was super souped up. It was like, blah, 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 blah. it was just, it was awesome. You'd, I loved driving it cause I would pull up to red lights and people would pull up next to me and they'd be like, ring, ring, ring. Like they wanted to race me cause they thought, I was a woman and so I couldn't drive and I would completely blow them out of the water. It was awesome. Yeah. But um, he would tell me all these stories about how he would just be flying down the interstate and he would see, you know, a police officer come and, you know, and he would just keep going because he was going so fast that there was no way. And then he would like get off the interstate and hide behind a Wendy's and, you know, everything's fine. And I just heard enough of these stories that I thought, I don't know what I thought because I actually had an experience when I was driving and it was, you know, a dark road and um, it was a two lane road. And I, um, I saw someone, I had passed a police officer 
um, on the side of the road and I, someone was coming and so I flashed my lights at them to let them know, hey, there's you know, a police officer, so don't go too fast, we wanna get a ticket. And he flashes lights back at me and I thought, okay, what kind of a moron doesn't know what the flashing lights means? Clearly, you know, there's a police officer, so be careful. So I flashed my lights at him again and he turned his lights on and it was actually a police officer that I was like trying to flag down and let him know that there was, hey, there's a police officer back here. <laughs> and I was mortified and I thought, oh my gosh. So he had to do a three point turn. I knew it was a really narrow road. And I'm just thinking, I'm hearing all these stories about my husband and I just went, I just took off in my no car. Way. <laughs> Not a Mustang with the boom, boom, boom. I mean, it was like a Dodge piece of garbage, nothing. And Sasha, I should, I should be in jail. I should have something. I mean, oh. that same course of my whole life <laughs> I managed to not get pulled over. But when I told my, my, he was my boyfriend at the time, you know, I was like all proud of myself, you know, oh my gosh, I did this. And he's like, are you stupid? Do you know your car? Don't ever do that in your car again. That's crazy talk. <laughs> that is hilarious. Wow, that, was that not is hilarious. I love that story. I think you told us a second rebel story as well. I think you're more of a rebel than you realize because you told me that um, <clears throat> when you were six months pregnant, you had all these expectations that you had of yourself that you were, you know, you were going to focus on just being mom and you were going to, you know, 100% that. And you, you defied your own expectations. You rebelled against your expectations and you set up a power business. I do find that my rebel moments are mostly, um, they're mostly brought about by other people. <laughs> I like pushed or influenced into the risky, uh, unexpected behaviors. And that's one way that Angela and I, again, are just a really good partnership because she, I am much more risk averse than she is. And she kind of pushes me outside of um, my comfort zone and what I'm used to and what I think is, you know, doable. And we always end up, we always say that we we're able to do so much more together than either one of us would ever be able to do on our own. So Amazing. it's all big. Tell listeners where they can find out more about you, your services and your books. Um, okay. We have at our blog, writershelpingwriters.net, where there's a bookstore page that has information on all of our books. You can see descriptions there. You can see previews. Um, and it has just purchasing information in case you're interested in where they can be bought. And then we have also at that website, we have um, a tools for writers page and we have a resource for writers page that you might find helpful. But we also have a, a subscription-based website called One Stop for Writers that is a, it has all of our thesauruses, even the ones that have not been published in book form. Um, so there are, I believe, 15 thesauruses at One Stop for Writers, and they're all hyperlinked and cross-referenced. Um, we call that site a library for writers because we really feel like it's a place where you can go and sit down and have all the stuff that you need to write your story. We've got a a character builder tool there to build your character from scratch. We've got story mapping tools and scene mapping tools and world building surveys and just um, as much as we can think of what do we need when we write a story, what do people need? Um, we have included it there. So that's one stop for writers.com. You could check that out too. Thank you so, so much for your time today. I have, I have, I cannot tell you how much I've loved geeking out <laughs> for this hour. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank 
Thank you also to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a variety of bonuses, then you can do so by visiting www.patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. Thank you also to all of you wonderful listeners. I'm Sasha Black. You were listening to Becca Puglisi, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I am joined by one of my amazing writing friends and YouTube superstar, Meg Latour. We will be talking about the traditional side of publishing and how to get an agent and pursue the traditional route. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.